Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. This is the Slow Poisoner. I come to you from the future with these words of warning. It's a hot horror planet. It's a hot horror planet. It's a hot. Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and I'm very proud to present Fun Ideas Podcast number 100. This episode is sponsored by the fine folks at Lee's Comics. Hi, I'm George Takei. You know me as Helmsman Sulu on Star Trek. When I'm not busy going Warp Factor 8, I like to beam down to Lee's Comics and spend a lazy afternoon reading comics classics from Marvel to DC, from Dark Horse to Fantagraphics, and everything in between. So please, spend some time here at Lee's Comics and spend your hard-earned cash. <laughs> Lee's Comics eBay store is still going strong with over 10,000 vintage comics, the majority of which are now on sale. For half off, choose from Lee's huge stock of golden, silver, bronze, and modern age comics, and specializing in Silver Age Marvel titles. You can count on friendly service, accurate grading, and quick, secure shipping backed by a money-back guarantee. To check out Lee's eBay store, go to eBay. Click Advanced Search to the left of the search bar, scroll down to Sellers, and enter Lee's Comics Inc., period. That's L-E-E-S-C-O-M-I-C-S-I-N-C, period. Don't forget the period. Lee's Comics is shipping daily with no delays. New items daily. Mention the Fun Ideas podcast and get a free bonus gift. Long title, Looking for the Good Times, Examining the Monkey Song One by One by Michael Aventrella and Mark Arnold. A book that examines each song, gives lots of details about each song, and our own personal opinions. You can find this book on Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, and anywhere where good books are being sold. Our webpage is wordpress.monkeys.com, where you can see many of the songs and give your own opinions of them. And we will be discussing this more on Zilch. Hey, Michael, it says here we've written another book about the monkeys. Wasn't the first one enough? Not at all, Mark. Our original book, Looking for the Good Times, Examining the Monkey Songs One by One, was very successful, but only covered half the story. Which half? The group half. Our new book, Headquartered, A Timeline of the Monkey's Solo Years, covers the solo half. Who knew the monkeys record so many solo albums? Not only that, but this book covers all of their solo projects, including stage shows, horse racing, running record labels, directing and starring in TV shows and movies, voice acting, and jail. Jail? Did the monkeys go to jail? Ah, you have to read the book to find out. You sold me. Have you sold them? Who, who, who's them? Those people out there listening to this. Well, listen to this. This book has discographies, photos, and other information about the prefab for Mickey, Davy, Peter, and Mike, the solo monkeys. 
plus another nifty cover by Scott Shaw. Wow, he did our last cover, and this one's equally good. Where can you get this masterpiece? Announcer. Announcer? That's me. <clears throat> get Headquartered, a timeline of the Monkey Solo Years, written by Michael A. Ventrella and Mark Arnold. Those two guys. It's available in hardback, paperback, or ebook from BearManorMedia.com or from Amazon. Get your copies today. Cool. I'm going to get one today. No news about my various book projects. Just please take the time to purchase my books on Harvey Comics, The Beatles, The Chipmunks, The Monkeys, Disney, Pink Panther, Underdog, Jack Davis, John Severin, Cracked Magazine, and Dance the Menace. They make great gifts. All are available on Amazon. Most are available through Bear Manor Media, and most are in hardback, paperback, and ebook. Today, in lieu of a guest, we will feature some highlights of the previous 99 episodes. Now, every episode is special to me, so don't take it as a slight if I didn't use a clip from a show that you were on, or I didn't include your favorite clip. Our first clip is from episode number six, when former Cracked Editor Mort Todd stopped by to discuss how he became the Cracked Editor from 1985 to 1990. Okay, I was a Cracked Reader since the 70s, and then you kind of came on the scene out of nowhere. Thank goodness you came out right after Paul Lakin had taken over and took it away from him. But, but... I never once considered, I don't know, maybe it was just me, I always thought of Mad as like the the gold standard or whatever and and never I never contributed I never thought about it or anything how did you fall upon it to to even consider working there much less contributing to it and even eventually becoming the editor right well it was his interesting story because <laughs> um <laughs> I uh, so when I moved to New York I went to uh, Parsons School Design for a year mm-hmm. and was doing illustration and then you know, I started getting work doing illustrations. So I was like, screw this. Where am I paying money for that? So <laughs> I ended up going to school of visual arts for film and TV. And then I sold my, my pilot. So I was like, screw this. So, but regardless, <laughs> uh, I met one of the first people I met was Pat Redding. And she is a phenomenal talent in her own right. She's a, a incredible illustrator and, and a funny as heck. Mm-hmm. But uh, before I was at Cracked, she actually got a job as uh, assistant editor to Larry Hama at Marvel. Hmm. And uh, he had previously done Crazy Magazine. And so uh, when, I'm a little out of breath, I just moved and (laughs) I've been unpacking all day. Oh, okay. um, (laughs) But uh, (laughs) uh, so she, so, so when the, these new publishers in New York bought Cracked from uh, from Sproul, um, Robert Sproul, right? And I keep right. mixing him up with Bill. It's Robert Sproul. Yeah, Bill was based. In yeah, <laughs> yeah. Who was based in Florida? So the New York publishers bought it and moved it up to New York. And so you know they needed an editorial staff. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I don't know how they got in touch with Lake, and probably the same way they got in touch with me. They called Marvel and asked Hama if he wanted to edit it, and he was like, no. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they asked for some suggestions, and it's very likely that's how they got Lake in. Okay. 
I'll have to ask Hama sometime, but I'm sure Hama was in deep in G.I. Joe at that point. So he's like, oh, yeah, yeah. He, had, he had tons of better things going on. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> he liked so, his crazy years, but he doesn't regret it ending. So I know that about right. him because I've talked yeah. to him before about it. <laughs> so uh, as uh, some of your listeners may not be aware, Lakin had worked for every humor magazine in existence and mm-hmm. created a few of his own and you know and he wasn't he was kind of regurgitating his old stuff so the publishers realized pretty quickly that yeah. you know that it wasn't really appealing to the youth market and so <laughs> they <laughs> so they were looking for someone you know hipper <laughs> to come on as like a the assistant editor or something like that so they called Larry again and thanks to my good friend Pat, she suggested me, and so I went up for an interview. And uh, they were like, they were like, "What would you do with the magazine?" And you know, and I gave a critique of what had come out so far with the Lakin books, and so I guess I liked what I had said. And uh, you know, they were like, "Well, what would you do for the magazine?" So I actually said, "Well, you know what? Tell you what, I'm gonna do." I'll <laughs> I'll draw a three-page story to give you an idea of what I do. So I did uh, I did a parody of He-Man versus G.I. Joe called, of course, Human versus G.I. Joke. Yes. And Witty. they liked it. <laughs> and, and another thing, yeah, right? <laughs> so that's what made, what made me a billionaire. And, uh, <laughs> and so uh, another thing, too, they wanted someone on staff because... Uh, Lakin was basically packaging it from Long Island and would bring it in. So, you know, they wanted someone in the office too. So yeah. that was me. Yeah. So they installed me on Fifth Avenue, nice little office uh, that I was sharing for a while with some porn magazine. <laughs> and <laughs> and then uh, and then you know that as things progress, what happened? They would allow me to do you know like basically commission half the book. And also, actually, my first thing I was told them is like, hey, these issues don't have Severin. And if you don't have Severin, yeah. there is no crack. This magazine is going to die quickly without Severin. Yeah. <laughs> so they were like, okay, that's your first job. Get Severin. So I called Severin. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it turned out Lakin was pulling some shenanigans and, you know, offered uh, Severin an insultingly low page rate and <laughs> also wanted a kickback. Because he'd been getting kick, kickbacks from all the artists and stuff. Uh-huh. And so, uh, you know, Severn was like, okay, I'll do it, but I don't want to have anything to do with Lakin. And I was like, yep, I promise you, you won't. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that started an incredibly fun relationship. Because, yeah. I mean, John Severn is just, you know, yeah. no matter who you are, you know, everyone has ultra respect for Severin's work. Oh, yeah. he's, he's just an incredible talent, and I was really honored to work with him and collaborate with him, and he was a bit of a mentor to me, because mm-hmm. when I started there, I was like 23, so I was still a little green. I figured I was an adult at 18, but <laughs> so I had a lot to learn. But And um, so then, yeah, I found out Lakin was pulling some other cheesy things, like... Uh, you know, reprinting material from like sick or something under yeah. act and getting paid for it. And junk. So, <laughs> so I showed it. I showed it to the publishers and they canned them. Oh. And <laughs> and then uh, they started looking for another editor. 
they interviewed a bunch of people and I was in on the interviews and everybody was like, okay, first you should change the name and get rid of your, the mascot, Sylvester. <laughs> and these publishers were like, we just paid, you know, a pile of money for the for the title and the character. <laughs> why are we gonna? Why would we want to get rid of it? And and so for some reason, I was the only one that saw like what the print schedule was, I guess, or something. So I just started putting the books out myself, and you know they weren't having any luck finding an editor. And then finally, they were like, oh you've been doing the book <laughs> and then yeah. and then once they saw the numbers they were like okay you're the editor yeah well <laughs> you came in just at the right time because I you know I had started buying I, I had always bought crack kind of off and on during the later several years and then when crazy went away, I started to buy it regularly, and then uh, when Lakin came in, I go, "Oh no, not Lakin again!" And I was about ready to give it up. I just said, "Okay, I can't buy this crack stuff." And you came in just like at the right time, like at the fourth or fifth <laughs> issue, where it's like, "Okay, oh, here's something different. Okay, let's give it a try." And then you turned it around pretty quickly once you took over. So it's like, "Okay, I like this. You're getting some new people in here, and hey, wow!" And then later on you got some really good people but um which is my next question you know it's like you got some different people like steve ditko and uh he, he, after he was my he was my first hire because like i mean i just loved Ditko. so i mean uh, I, I think i've asked this before but not on you know a podcast but it's like were these friends of yours or just heroes or you just wanted good quality artists or what a yeah. combination no, I, I, I didn't know him you know he didn't know me from adam so yeah. I just called him up out of the blue. This was back in the day when they had phone books, and he was in, he was in the phone books. Yeah. So I called him up, and within like you know fifteen twenty minutes, he was in my office uh -huh. with 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 his portfolio to prove that he could do. That. <laughs> I, I know, right? And I was like, "Come on!" I used to draw a couple minor characters. I think you might have heard of them: <laughs> Spider Man, Doctor Strange. <laughs> so we became fast friends, and I would. Yeah, I would say that he and Ditko and Severin were like big influences on me when I was younger. Yeah. And then as an editor, they were big influences on me on everything because, you know, I'd, I'd be on the phone with Severin, I don't know, like almost every day for hours. And then <laughs> Ditko would come to the office, you know, pretty, pretty constantly and stay for hours and mm -hmm. we'd just talk about everything. And yeah. So yeah, we had a good mix of uh, you know car the artists that I liked growing up because you know we got like you know of course Severin and Dicko, but like you know Gene Colan and uh, damn you you name it. Plus a lot of the regular cracked artists like Rick Martin and I got Bill Ward to come back to the magazine because he he got screwed over too. But <laughs> uh, and, and then I got a lot of people who you know admittedly were my friends. Mort Todd returned later for episode number 37 and interviewed me. Our next clip is from episode number 16 with David Seedman when he started talking about his experiences writing a book about Iran. Uh, the last two books I saw on the list, um, they're very similar, so I'll just mention them in tandem. Uh, Teens in South Africa, Teens in Iran? Yes. Iran? <laughs> and, and those, those were part of a series, and... Um, 
I, I did not travel to either of those places, but it was fascinating to read, uh, to, to study up on them. Iran in particular, because one thing I did not know is that um, at the time, it may still be true, the biggest languages, as far as just number of people or, or traffic online, were something like English, Chinese, and always third or fourth was Farsi. Because the Iranians, this is no primitive country. These guys are hooked up. And that saved me because a lot of these people, in order to write honestly but not get caught by the authorities, wrote in English. So there were these very surprisingly uh, frank uh, blogs out there by young people and, and folks who worked and you know, knew young people. And it, and it really helped tremendously. It also did not hurt very much. I didn't use this uh, resource because I didn't have a lot of time. Uh, but Los Angeles has an enormous Iranian uh, immigrant community. It is The nickname for L.A. is, is Terangelis. <laughs> and, and in fact, a lot of people in Iran, there, there's a lot of television production in Farsi that goes to Iran uh, to the point where the authorities in Iran will sometimes do a sweep in, uh, of houses to find hidden um, uh, satellite dishes mm -hmm. because people are trying to get news from a free country. Uh. Um, and they wanted it in Farsi. And that was L.A. We have the Farsi speakers and the TV industry. Um, but it was, it was that was a fascinating book to, to dig into. For example, I found that although, yes, it is a very devoutly Iranian country and very heavily, it's a police state, it's very heavily, heavily policed. The most popular music for young people is heavy metal. <laughs> they love Metallica in Iran. Wow. Oh my God, Metallica could do a 30-day uh, residency, at least at that time, if, they, if Iran would allow it. <laughs> Motorhead, they love that. So, wow. it's, it's, yeah. Do, do they have? Uh, do they allow this? So, like, uh, like I know the Soviet Union used to do this: is that they would have uh, cover bands in lieu of having the actual artists show up. Do they, so they have Metallica cover bands or anything like that? To your knowledge, I, I really doubt it. Okay, uh, so they're really clamping down. They don't allow anything. Oh, okay. oh, oh, yeah, they're okay. they're very, very strong. But oh, I, I found myself just falling in love with the Iranian people because they kept finding ways around the rules. Yeah, give you a couple quick examples. Uh, Iranian women are some of the best makeup artists in the world because they had to be covered up. The only things they could show were their hands and their faces. <laughs> so you have these women, if that's all you got, that's what you do. Oh my God, they were just beautifully, beautifully made up. Uh, um, hot plastic surgeons did, a, do, did, at least and probably still do, a land office business because if the only thing you got is your face, well, there's going to be a lot of nose jobs. <laughs> uh, uh, or women, young women, young men, teenagers are not, and I was writing about teenagers, were not allowed to be out um, with each other in public. Maybe not, in, they're not supposed to be in private either, but private you could hide. But, you know, so there are no, like, school dances. Well, what could be done, though, and, and this is one of these open secrets, is um, there's a lot. Iran has some beautiful beautiful uh, uh, terrain. And so kids would go out on hikes, and of course the hikes would be just the guys. <laughs> and 
be another hikers instead of hikers, just the women, just the girls. <laughs> and they would meet at the top of these of a hill or something, or in a forest, um, where they could get together with each other. But they left separately. It looked like just a group of guys going on a nature hike. Just just another group of girls an hour or two later on an HR hike, perfectly wholesome, no problem. (laughs) Except they would get together in secret. I love people who are that good at getting around stupid, you know, dictatorial rules. God God bless the ingenuity of the Iranian people. Well, how did you find out this? I mean, if it's so secret. People blogged about it. Oh, wow. So it's not that secret. It's just secret to... (laughs) Well, it's one of these open secrets where the the country... The the, the religious police, who who generally are a terror, um, I think they had better things to do, or at least other things to do. Or maybe... I don't know. Maybe they (laughs) preferred to bust people who had money so they could get bribes. I don't know. I have no fondness for the Iranian religious police. Mm -hmm. Neither do the Iranians. (laughs) But um, but also there were a lot of really good journalists covering Iran, going in, going into it, writing about what the people did. Mm-hmm. Um, between the blogs and the journalists out there, I found a lot of and, and God bless them both for their courage. I, and I because you know it, it, Iran has no hesitation about um, expelling or imprisoning journalists or attacking or even killing their own people. So, yeah, I mean, look, I'm having a good laugh about this, but these people, oh, my God, the, the, the bravery of the Iranian people and the journalists, Iranian and foreign, who covered that country, holy hell, that, that my, I have such admiration for them. Now, did you have any trouble with the book, or is it just like you just did the book and that's it? So. I, just, I just wrote it, the publisher put it out. Okay. Um, that's it. I, I would imagine it's not being published in Iran. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> That's but, yeah, it's, it's, Iran is one of those places. Russia is like this, too, from what I've understood. Terrific people, terrible government. Seedman also discussed his book about South Africa, which made for a great show. Author and collector Denise McKinney appeared on episode number 19 and again on episode number 69. On number 19, she told me a brief history about matchbook collecting, which was fascinating. I know you're into things like matchbook collecting or match cover collecting. I don't know the proper term. Uh, how did you get interested in collecting things like that and other vintage ephemera? Well, I've always kind of liked older things. Um, you know, I grew up in the 80s, so I love 80s things, but my neighborhood was heavily developed like in the 1950s and 60s. So I kind of got a, a taste of it just by shopping going you know throughout my neighborhood um i've always liked old tv um it's just history has always been my number one subject in school so i don't know there's just something about the old way of life and vintage things that always appealed to me um not just the history part of it but you know the artwork or the, the typography and just i don't know it just seems like people cared more back then <laughs> and that shows in any kind of collectibles, ephemera, anything from that era. So I've just always had an interest in it. Okay. Um, you know, in regards to your match cover collecting, what do you consider your prized possession? <laughs> well, everyone has their own different prized possession or, you know, the Holy Grail. Um, there is a Holy Grail 
when it comes to matchbook collecting, um, and that is a, there's two. They're Charles Lindbergh covers from 1927. Oh, wow. They only made a few, because um, one was for a dinner, one was for a luncheon in 1927. They're rare, though, because, they're, like I said, there wasn't many produced. And um, there's a typo on them. One says Captain, one says Colonel. Oops. So those are the Holy Grail, but they're not my Holy Grail. Oh, okay. um, yeah, I mean, you know, people always ask, like, what's the Holy Grail? I'm like, well, technically. But every collector has stuff they're interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favorite covers, and I always tell people, I guess it is my absolute favorite cover. Um, I have one from Rodney Bingenheimer's English Disco that was on the Sunset Strip in, you know, the 70s. Um, to me, that's my holy grail because how many of those really existed? I mean, not existed, but came away from there, you know, that were destroyed or completely used up or damaged. And, um, you know, it is a part of L.A. rock and roll history, you know. So to me, like, I love that one. That's one of my absolute favorites in my collection. But everyone has their own different holy grail or favorite matchbook i know when you posted on facebook which i'm really impressed with uh you can describe it better than i can but it was something to do with kentucky fried chicken or something like that with a... oh yeah <laughs> um, no that is i guess that's my second holy grail okay. um, well i don't know if it's well, holy grail but i remember it was, i was i was impressed with it and i don't even collect the things really <laughs> oh okay well oh yeah i know it's um they put these out i want to say in the 50s um it's a Kentucky Fried Chicken, and I don't know if they gave them out or you were able to buy them, because a lot of places sold, you know, the nicer matches or, or you know, sets of matches, um, like in a gift shop or things like that. Kentucky Fried Chicken doesn't have a gift shop, so I'm, I'm assuming these were probably given away, like, at a grand opening or, or something like that, but it's a box, and it has three buckets, well, they're supposed to be buckets, but they're barrels mm-hmm. of matches, and they look like Kentucky Fried Chicken, buckets of chicken, but the box itself has, like, all about the uh, 11 herbs and spices, and it has Old Kentucky Home on it, all <laughs> kinds of stuff, and those are not necessarily super hard to come by, but in great condition, they're hard to come by, so I was very thrilled i got this and someone gave it to me like from their collection for my birthday so it made it even better but it, it's you're right it's, it's pretty amazing that like i said it's it's survived that long mm-hmm. in such great condition so I, I i do love that one too you're right i didn't make a video about that one. So, <laughs> i forgot, I forgot. Are, are they wooden matches or paper matches in that case uh they're wooden okay. because if it's in like a barrel or okay. in a matchbox okay. those are wooden the only paper ones are on an actual matchbook so Okay, um, and are there any now that you're kind of on the lookout for? Well, you know, we all, well, we all have our categories of different ones we collect. Um, I'm someone, a collector, that I really don't collect new matches, <laughs> and um, I know a lot of them do. Like, you'll see it on my Facebook. People will be like, well, you went to that restaurant. Did they have any matches? <laughs> I, I didn't ask because, to me, I like the vintage ones, you right. know, and I like the history of it. Um, newer matches are hard to find. But uh, they are coming back. It's mostly matchboxes are coming back. And it's more like hipstery restaurants or upscale restaurants are coming out with more matchboxes and casinos because that's the only place you can still really smoke is in a casino. But, um, you know, I just, you know, with my categories, uh, you know, I just look to try to fill them out as best as I can. But new matches, I'm there's nothing really I'm looking for new-wise, unless it's just funny or hysterical or there's something 
about it but um yeah, yeah i just keep collecting you know and my categories change all the time because you right. got to keep it fresh so, so, so i'm vintage, always on the lookout so vintage wise what are you looking for well the elusive I, uh, <laughs> well, well, no. <laughs> I know, i'm trying to like condense it because you know yeah. i can go on and on about matches right. <laughs> um, well i you know there's general collectors which kind of collect a little bit of everything yeah. a lot of collectors now really specialize in different categories so you'll meet someone like i i know someone who only collects pizza or italian restaurants wow. so that's all he wants so i think after a while you get kind of bored because well you there's only so many you know but um, i have a couple categories that i collect geographically and um, one of them is southern california so that's always my biggest category and i'm always on the lookout for those um unlike stamps and coins though at least stamps and coins there's a beginning and an end and you know exactly what was produced what was out there so you have something to go off of matches is never ending so you might think like oh i have a pretty good you know hollywood collection no you'll find some more that you didn't have or didn't even know you you know existed and you're like oh. so i'm always trying to build up my my southern california collection um other categories i collect just to keep it fun um i collect what i call party animals so it's animals that drink on the cover um and there is quite a few really <laughs> they like bars and lounges um i like cannibal animals so it's like a steer holding a steak you know, wow. like Sizzler. <laughs> so that's another category. Um, I like cafeterias. Um, what else do I collect now? Dogs, uh, World's Fair, uh, Route 66. Hmm. Um, and then there's always like subcategories of categories, you know. Um, I do collect, like I used to collect just, and I know it's not being right, but like handicapped people because but it's not bad because you just need new stuff and you need something new to hunt so that's a whole new thing like oh here's someone in a wheelchair i'm gonna add it to my collection you know <laughs> you do you have to keep it fresh and you have to think outside the box just so you're not getting bored of matchbook collecting mm -hmm. but um i have a lot of little subcategories um you know because like i said you, you got to keep it interesting and fun and it, it is never ending and I assume because uh, you know I have a few matchbooks, but and I'll talk about them in a second. But I mean, in collecting, it's more prestigious or desirable to have the actual matches still in it rather than just the cover itself. Correct? No. Really? Oh. No. Oh. Um, yeah, you can. No, you can collect however you want. Okay. You know, we never tell you don't do this, don't okay. do that. Well, I know, like but... in comic book collecting, there's really kind of about things so i thought maybe matchbooks no, and, maybe and they're a little right. more lesser <laughs> <laughs> it is no it is and then you really can collect how you want mm -hmm. um but mostly traditionally in the hobby and um you'll hear me refer to that because there's people who collect matches mm -hmm. but they're not in the actual like the hobby is what we call it so they're they don't participate like in clubs or the conventions and things like that so in the hobby and i'm using air quotes when i say that the hobby um they suggest you take the matches out which is called shucking denise mckinney also discussed her love of morrissey and of restaurants comics historian bill shelley gave me a great interview for episode number 29 before he passed away a few months later his background story was fascinating a little background first uh just tell us who you are and how you got into comic book fandom and writing and uh, things like that. Okay, well, let's see if I can sum that up real quick here. <laughs> um, but really, 
I'm, uh, like so many people, I'm one of the baby boomers that grew up in the 60s who discovered comics uh, at the dawn of the Marvel era, you know, the early issues of Fantastic Four, Spider-Man, the Avengers, and all those, and I've been a longtime fan. Um, at the same time, um, I was also very involved in comic fandom, which was, of course, still exists, but it was the beginnings of a group of people that were getting in touch through fanzines and uh, small Comic-Cons and so on in order to um, talk to people who cared about the hobby because at that time it was a small hobby and not that many people were interested in superheroes or comics in general. And so um, when I got involved in that as a teenager, I um, immediately decided I wanted to publish a fanzine. Mm -hmm. And at, so at the age of 13, uh, I was publishing a fanzine um, in 1965 called Superheroes Anonymous. Mm -hmm. Where that title came from, I have no idea. <laughs> uh, it makes no sense, really. Uh, but, um, uh, and of course at 13, what do you have to say? It's right. so funny, you know, when you think about it. But of course many kids have their own little neighborhood newspapers and so on. And, and so it's a common thing for kids to kind of try to publish their own little thing, and I did. And that's how I uh, kind of got deeper into fandom and comics throughout the 60s and published a fanzine called Sense of Wonder which became uh, kind of a, a slick, professionally printed fan magazine in its later issues. Uh, and that ended when I graduated from college in 1973. Mm -hmm. And since then, I've you know been um, involved in the hobby, uh, started not really writing about it much though until I was about 40, around 1990 I started really getting interested in writing something about comics or writing about fandom. And that was what got me started, and now I've gotten something like I'm approaching 30 books. Wow. Um, <laughs> I didn't realize that, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> well, you know, since, since 1995, uh, when I published uh, The Golden Age of Comic Fandom, which was the first, you know, as far as I know still, the only attempt to tell the history of comic fandom from its beginnings. Um, that was in 1995, uh, and then up to today, you know, I've just been completely consumed with this idea of becoming, you know, a writer and writing about the hobby and writing biographies. Mm. So that's kind of uh, the summary bringing you up to what I do now. Okay. Uh, a few questions. Um, of course, it's a question and answer show. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you mentioned two fanzines. Did you have those going concurrently, the Superheroes Anonymous and Sense of Wonder, at the same time? Um, no. What oh, okay. it was was that um, I would do a fanzine, and then as I was growing up and getting a little older, I would start to think, oh, that's kind of crummy, so I would change the title, but keep the numbering. Oh, okay. That way, it looked like I was publishing, you know, numerous issues and create the, you know, so I wasn't always going back to number one. Okay. <laughs> and so I did Superheroes Anonymous, and then I changed the title to Incognito with number three, 
And so I was always doing that. I was publishing one thing, and if it wasn't that, um, then when Sense of Wonder came along, I wasn't doing any of those others at that time. Okay, so you you uh, pulled you pulled an EC Comics where you started off with Fat and Slat and <laughs> International <laughs> Comics, and then it evolved into something else or something. Right, yeah. okay. it ends up in Default of Horror or something. <laughs> um, anyway, <laughs> which would have, uh, you know, if you think about it, uh, Bill Gaines' father must have been turning over in his grave over that because he was all into the tiny tots and the animal comics and everything and his son takes over and before you know it you have <laughs> horror comics right <laughs> uh, but anyway um yeah I, I would i would change it as i went along mm-hmm. and i also contributed to a lot of other amateur you know fanzines mm-hmm. so i was fairly well known back then at that time doing that so do you actually, I know you worked on the books, the best of Alter Ego 1 and 2, but did you actually contribute back then? I didn't, um, oh, okay. and I was so envious of my best friend, Marshall Lance, <laughs> who had a cartoon in Alter Ego number 8, hmm. or maybe it was number 9. I think it was 8. Yeah. And it, it, no, it was 9 because it was a parody of the Blackhawk cover on number 8. But the point is, my best friend who... <laughs> I always thought it was a crummy artist. I can say that now because he passed away, so I'm not hurting it, hurting his feelings. He's turning in his grave. No. You know, I, 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 the thing is, it's so funny because I was really a crummy artist too. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I was so I was very envious. What he had done is he had uh, written a letter of comment on Alter Ego number eight and sent it to Roy Thomas. And in the letter, he had done a cartoon uh, of Blackhawk jumping out of his plane and then going splat. And Roy thought that was cute, and he ran it in Alter Ego 9. Mm-hmm. And it worked really great. And uh, But me, no. I never got to the Alter Ego level. Okay. I was um, usually uh, in the more um, uh, middle ranks, you'd mm-hmm. say. And uh, how was it fandom back then? I see. I started collecting comics in the '70s, so you already had the Price Guide, the Overstreet, and you know things were getting a little more professional. It was still kind of like a closet thing, you know, but not the way it was before. I mean, how did you get your information back then? There's no comics journal or anything, so. Well, exactly, and that was the, one of the main things that brought comic fans together was because they had so many questions. Like, um, you know, imagine people trying to c- collect Adele four-color comics, and so you'd have issues, like when Little Lulu came out, the first issue was number 74. Right. <laughs> and then there'd be issue like 105, 110, 111, and then when they'd break out into their own comic book, they'd be number one again. Right. And it's just, this is the kind of stuff that just drove fans crazy. So when they came together, they started creating checklists mm. and they started creating uh, and sharing them through the fanzines and uh, just by correspondence and so on. Okay. And gradually the history coming together and writing the history of comics and discovering the history of comics became one of the major reasons why people came together and uh, so as far as finding information goes um, you know uh, most of what I did in the fanzines was do things like amateur comic strips and um, reviews of the latest Marvel comics and (laughs) things like that Uh, so there was no research involved Uh, people who were really doing the research and Alter Ego was one of them um, and and then, of course, there was the series All in Color for a Dime, uh, 
right. it was uh, published in Zero, the fanzine Zero, by Richard and Pat Lupoff, um, were doing articles on Golden Age comics. And so you'd read those, or you'd read, uh, you'd look at uh, cover reproductions that were in um, a few fanzines here and there, and so you could see what was appeared on the covers. But boy, you know, it really was a um, uh, a different time because uh, you just didn't know. For example, I wanted to buy a Golden Age comic book and I couldn't afford much, so I'd order like a Daredevil comic book from the early 50s. This is the earlier version of Daredevil than we have today. Right. And Daredevil didn't appear in his own title after the 40s. His title was taken over by a group of kids, uh, funny comics called the Little Wise Guys. Hmm. Well, I had no way of knowing that. <laughs> I just thought I was getting it for $3 or $2. I was getting a, an old Daredevil comic book. Uh, so I got it and I went, oh, this isn't what I hoped for. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, you just didn't have sources of information. Shelley was a great guest who is still missed by me and this show. All of his books are excellent. Musician Danny Salazi stopped by on episode number 38 with some songs and provided a great performance of his group The Characters playing with the late Davy Jones of the Monkeys on Hippie Hippie Shake. As far as the monkeys go, um, we started out by doing the conventions and then uh, what we would do is we would like uh, learn some songs like when Heart and Soul came out, mm -hmm. uh, we figured, okay, this is a brand new record, they're probably going to want to push it. We learned it. And we told them we learned it, and they did it with us. You know what I mean? Oh, okay. They got up on stage. Peter and Mickey got up on stage with us. In other instances, uh, Davey had done Hippie Hippie Shake as an Australian single. Yeah. And we had learned it off of a Beatles bootleg from back in the early 80s. Right. Uh, <laughs> which we didn't even know where that stuff came from. It was BBC stuff, but we didn't know what it was. It was just on, you know, these, like cheapo vinyl bootlegs that we got and we were doing hippie be shaking our set and so i mentioned it to him and, and he did it with us
Thanks everybody. I think I'm not sure, but I think I gotta go now. Salazi also performed a great rendition of the Chipmunk song, not using Chipmunk voices. Our next clip is from the late Harvey production artist Paul Marangeli, who discussed working on George Baker's Sad Sack on episode number 40. We would take Sad Sack art and rework it for a new cover because they had, they had the stock of Sad Sack old drawings that they would use on the cover. Right. I don't mean old like from the 40s, but things that were just not used that were purchased years prior because they had a backlog so we put it on the cover and that, that I would color and retouch and this and that because mm -hmm. uh, Warren pretty much stayed away from Sad Sack yeah. but, can I uh, ask you a quick question so about that uh, yeah like, sure sure so George Baker died in 1975 yet there was like new covers for years after that I mean did he just churn out a whole bunch of just random images and he, it was like whenever you use them and he may have. We had, okay. yeah, we had, we had a lot of art. I don't know if they were all really George Baker's or they were his his assistants who were, you know, uh, what was that guy? Fred Rhodes did some stuff. Right. And uh, yeah, and I don't really know what the story was because I didn't know any of those people. Okay. And a lot of backstories of Harvey's, it was like a no-no to talk about. <laughs> if you asked the question, it was like it was like a no-no. Yeah. You know, I think probably like Ken and Sid didn't want to talk about things that would like make Leon or Alfred upset. Yeah. If they know they were talking about it, you know. So it would just be, oh no, we have we have we have covers in the files. Just go get this one or get this okay. one. You know. I know. I know. You know Sad Sack was kind of its own separate thing. I mean, I don't know. Did you even work yeah. on any of that stuff? Oh, yeah, I worked on a lot of sets, like, because oh. Warren never wanted to touch it. Oh, okay. So, like, I would, yeah, I would, I would sometimes go through artwork and, like, update it a little bit, or if they had something that they wanted for the cover. I remember once they did a cover, I forget exactly what the drawing was, but there was a there was a drawing of, of course, Sad Sack and the Sergeant, some kind of weird thing, and it was going to be put on like a December cover, but the drawing was supposed to be the summer. <laughs> and my assignment was is that, and of course they're in the army uniform, so you can't tell if it's summer or winter, <laughs> but the background was like a summer scene, and I was told to put snow on everything and get rid of the sun. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yeah, and I drew. I had to draw snow on the rooftops and on the ground, oh so it looked like a December scene. <laughs> but you know, it, unlike copying Warren, it isn't too hard to copy George Baker. At least not for me. <laughs> I I can see what you mean. <laughs> Marangeli told me many more great stories about his years at Harvey. Scott Shaw appeared on episode number forty-six and told me some funny San Diego Comic Con stories. Before this happened, even, it was, I think, at the first... No, no, by this time it probably had happened. But it was at the uh, first Comic-Con that was at the El Cortez Hotel. Mm -hmm. And my friend Terry Stroud had brought a huge Roman candle. And the way that the El Cortez was constructed, there were... Built, it kind of surrounded the pool. The pool was in the middle of it, and so there were there were rooms going high up on on two sides and really high up on the third side. Hmm. 
and we were down by the pool and Terry pulls out this this uh, firework and we're going <laughs> to set it off and Jack walks by and Terry yells out hey Jack you want to light this thing and Jack starts walking over and he goes never forget Terry goes it's the boom tube Jack you know for his new world his fourth, fourth world new god stuff Jack just for a second he comes over and you, and I remember really he had this look in his eye like yeah that'd be fun and then he says ah oh, boys I don't think I'm then he suddenly because he's looking around he's realized like it's a fire to the hotel <laughs> and so he walked away and we set it off anyway and it didn't, it didn't set fire to the hotel but it certainly could have yeah yeah <laughs> Shaw drew the covers to both of my monkey's books Peter Bagg was the editor of Weirdo and also produced Neat Stuff and Hate. Here's his story about his characters, the Bradleys versus the Simpsons from episode number 57. Early on with the Bradleys, this might be walking on little eggshells or something, but I'll ask anyway, and then you could say no. <laughs> um, did you have any issues or anything with Matt Groening or anything? Because Simpsons kind of was kind of the same sort of idea, at least initially, of, you know, like a bickering family or... Right. Well, you know, I saw some similarities, and I used to, I used to wonder did, did the Bradleys inspire the Simpsons in any way, shape, or form? Yeah. But then I thought, well, that's a bit ego, egotistical to assume. Mm. But then later, you know, later on, with him just very surreptitiously and other people, it was like it's been kind of confirmed to me that uh, the Simpsons were. In no small measure, inspired by the Bradleys. Yeah. Uh, but, but no, that. But you know, the differences are also huge. Yeah. For one thing, um, the Simpsons are a vehicle for satire. It's the, right. as soon as it started, it was the new Mad Magazine. Right. The show is very satirical, and it just takes off in all these crazy directions that I never had any interest in doing. It has celebrity guest appearances. Right. Um, so it's it's all a, what drives it. The, the whole point of the show is satirical mm -hmm. and uh, and that was not the case at all with the Bradleys or Buddy Bradley mm -hmm. and um, so I don't, and, and Matt was also when he first got a deal uh, to do the Bradleys to, when it turned into a regular television show he asked me to try my hand at uh, writing a script oh. so I actually had yeah to, you know so not not to be a staffer on the show because I wasn't ready to move to LA and he didn't ask me that um, but uh, he just asked me to try my hand at uh, writing something which is very which was really nice of him I did I considered it for a bit but then I declined because that was right around the time that I was starting to do hate mm -hmm. I think the first issue of hate might have even I've already come out I yeah. can't remember now, but it was already doing well. So yeah. it's like of course, I was thinking. Was I'm right now, I'm doing everything. I'm accomplishing everything that I always want to accomplish. <laughs> so I'm not going to drop everything and invest a lot of time trying to do this other thing. Right. Maybe I should have tried to do both, but I just yeah. there would, would have been a big learning curve ahead for me because at, at that time I had never even tried to write a script. Hmm. So that might have been. I might have been biting off more than I could chew. But I still really appreciated the fact that he asked me. Okay. And it might have been him, I never asked him this, might have been him throwing me a bone to make up for the fact that uh, The Simpsons were, especially that very first episode, um, it was a Christmas, they, they started The Simpsons with a Christmas episode, and there were 
noticeable similarities between that and a, a story of the Bradleys called Merry Fucking Christmas. Right, right. <laughs> yes. And um, so, yeah, a, a friend, a cartoonist friend of mine, she wrote that episode. And I, I've never, bro- I never broached that subject with her, though. But uh, okay. it's like, I don't know. I think there was a little bit of cherry picking going on. <laughs> I, I, I might have, uh, I, I, you know what I did one time when we were both drunk, I mentioned it to uh, Matt. And uh-huh. he, he was both defensive and angry <laughs> so i was like all right well, i'm just gonna leave this alone okay bag also had some great tales about working for cracked and mad comic book store owner and singer joe ferrara discussed getting through the 1989 san francisco bay area earthquake and how his store atlantis fantasy world survived on episode number 65 just wanted to ask you about the earthquake out of all things that you said <laughs> you know, I never knew it was three years how did you do that and was there a problem with theft or anything like that with not having well, a very secure location I never went to it during those years yeah. so anyway yeah. you know the old saying uh, takes a village uh-huh. well uh, um, the, the communities came together um, and, and, and uh, uh, there's a lot of details there's a few books on the subject of photographs and everything but the basic essence of what happened was uh, the business community. There was three organizations. There was the Chamber of Commerce, the Cultural Council, and the Downtown Association of Santa Cruz. Mm-hmm. And uh, somebody knew that these tents existed. They came out of Canada. They got uh, uh, everybody pitched in. The union labor guys donated their time. There's a few pictures on our Atlantis website. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, there's a couple of books, like I say, on the project. But um, basically, we started out with eight uh, big tents, and one of them housed Bookshop Santa Cruz, if you can believe it, and one of them housed Santa Cruz Hardware. Mm. And to the question about security, first alarm came in. Uh, they built cyclone fences around uh, the parking lots. The first summer, uh, first uh, Christmas that we had, uh, there was no heat, and you could actually see your breath in the air. <laughs> it, but honestly, there were... Tr- busloads of people who came to support the downtown. They wanted to make sure the merchants uh, were going to make it. Mm-hmm. It was uh, it was incredible. It was a real lesson in people coming together. Uh, you hear a lot about being part of the community and the average person, you know, wanting to have a good life and a, and a good home to live in and everything. Uh, nothing like it. I'm sure this happened uh, during Katrina. I'm sure this happened whenever there was a natural disaster mm-hmm. and you see people in the communities coming together to help each other out mm. and uh, that's that's what it was there were it was stressful times there were aftershocks and yeah. uh, uh, some people lost everything some people extended their credit to the point where after the tents were coming down as buildings were being rebuilt uh, some of them had used up all their credit and couldn't qualify to get into anything new so <laughs> I always say it was business as usual, but under a microscope, because, <laughs> you know, if you think about your average town, you walk down the street, and it's changed since you first walked down that street, and you don't notice it because it's usually done gradually. Mm-hmm. Um, this was done all at once. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so um, if you took a snapshot of what Main Street looked like, um, you know, 20 years ago, and you look at it now in any town, you're going to see changes. Mm-hmm. But it's you know it's it's the normal of, of business. But it, when it's under a microscope, I, I clearly remember that the news stories in those days were another business in the tents was going out of business, was mm-hmm. closing. And yet 
there were uh, three or four businesses that started in those tents and went on to have you know great uh, long lives here in town but they never covered uh, a new business opening they always wanted to talk about the businesses that were closing which was frustrating but <laughs> the bottom line was it was a community effort mm-hmm. um, there was uh, there was uh, it was a challenge as as uh, as if, if you're in a tent with four other businesses or six other businesses and one of you has a problem you all have the problem mm. and uh, they finally installed some kind of a heater system but it was in the center of the uh, tent so the people that were at the front where the doors were froze and the people in the middle were boiling and people kept running over and adjusting the thermostats and <laughs> had to have a meeting for that you know like okay how are we going to solve this problem you know mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, you'll learn to work with people yeah. uh, it's very tough when when, uh, when something like that happens and then we moved out of the tents as I say the last person they were taking the other tents down and storing the parts in our tent mm-hmm. as, uh, as that was happening but uh, you know the, uh, the original store still lives on in the movies we were in the, the Lost Boys Ferrara's tale is eerily similar to the recent pandemic and was recorded shortly before the pandemic started. One of my most prized interviews is when I got former MAD editor Bill Morrison to open up for the first time about his dismissal in episode number 67. So I guess my final question before we go, and we we talked briefly before we started recording, and I understand the sensitivity of it, but I have to ask about the Mad Magazine situation. I mean, you were all hired on to become the new editor when they moved to Los Angeles, and then a year later, uh, you were no longer the editor. So what can you tell me about that situation without... (laughs) <laughs> stepping on all any I, fingers or anything like that <laughs> all, all I can tell you is um, uh, I love DC Comics I love the people there um, you know, I don't want to say anything bad about anybody at DC mm-hmm. um, you know it was very it was painful um, losing that job and it was um, it's, you know, it's still difficult to think about it mm-hmm. I think because of the fact that we were we were doing really good work. Um, the subscription numbers were actually up from when I started, mm-hmm. um, and that may be because everybody wanted that little mini tiki mug that we offered <laughs> as subscriptions. Um, right. But um, you know, I feel the seven seven issues that I did, I feel really good about. Um, I think I think they would have all of us, everybody on the team that I hired. I think we would have gotten much better. I feel I feel good about the seven issues that we did, and um, you know we were experimenting. We basically had a mandate to to keep the audience that we had because uh, most of the sales of Mad are are done through subscriptions, and we had a huge subscriber base. So we didn't want to lose any of those people, but we also wanted to attract a new audience uh, and a younger audience and, and a female audience and a more racially diverse audience because basically the people who were subscribing to MAD were either 11-year-old white boys, um, 11 to 16-year-old white boys, and then 45 to 60-year-old white males. That's me. <laughs> yeah. And that's 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 basically the mad fan base. I mean, you know, not exclusively, of course, but right. but uh, predominantly. So, um, you know, how do you how do you keep the people who are subscribing and who love mad and and 
and uh, and are also sometimes very vocal about what they don't like. How do you keep them happy and also do something that's relevant to this other um, segment of the population? So I think we were I think we were doing that pretty successfully. I think given more time, we would have done it even better. Yeah, you know, we we would have fine tuned it and found a way to really um, keep those rabid mad fans happy and also bring in uh you know a whole new audience um but we just weren't given enough time and i think you know maybe priorities changed at warner brothers yeah um you know people were brought in who were not as big a fan of mad as as those who were in charge before at warner brothers um and then you know the decision was made to um to go to more of a reprint-based magazine. And I know they sort of walked that back a little bit. Mm -hmm. I think the latest issue, which is the Mad 20 Dumbest, um, obviously that has to have new material. Yeah. But the next one that comes out after that, um, I have no idea. I mean, I... I I have it, and it... it Proudly proclaims on the cover twelve percent new material. So twelve percent. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah, that makes sense because I know they wanted to keep uh, Spy vs. Spy, and they wanted yeah. to keep Sergio involved. Yeah. Um, I don't know how much I don't know how much she's doing yeah. in the magazine now, but I haven't read it yet, so I don't know if there's a new Sergio or not. I know Jaffe, it seemingly is finally retired. So. Uh, yeah. Because I think the last uh, issue with a new one with him, of Holden, was the last one you did, I think. Morrison is doing well and working on many other projects. He also discussed working with Mad's Tom Richmond, who appeared on episode number 70, to discuss working for both Mad and Cracked. I've asked this before, you told the story before, but it's still a fun story. Um, prior to Mad, you worked at Cracked, and, uh, you know, tell us how you got the job at Cracked, but then the the story I always like to hear, because it's a good story, is just how you got the job at Mad after working for Cracked for about a year or so. <laughs> yeah, well, I started at Cracked right at the time that American Media uh, bought it, you know, bought it through mm-hmm. osmosis, and... Um, You've, you told that story in your books, uh, uh, you know, quite well. But uh, and the short version is that American Media, uh, which owned the Weekly World News, bought uh, the company that owned the National Enquirer, which also owned Cracked. And the American Media people didn't think they wanted to continue to publish Cracked. It wasn't really making any money. And uh, so... Um, there was a, uh, an art director, an editor there named Dick Culpa, who was a cartoonist, who said, I'll save Crack Magazine. <laughs> and uh, so he took it over. Well, of course, the first thing they did was cut the page rate to zero. <laughs> Not quite zero, but pretty close to zero. Yeah. And, uh, you know, all the, like, John Severin and Wally Brogan and Art Bollinger and all these guys that were mainstays at Cracked, we're like we're not working for this yeah. <laughs> so so they lost all their artists so he had a call out for artists willing to do work for dirt cheap and you know mainly just to get your your artwork out there mm-hmm. which is a terrible thing but you know at the time i was um so this was probably what 1999 or 2000 Roughly. um and I was, you know, had just got done doing the Married with Children and, and, and other comic book work. And I was looking for, for something that was a little bit more caricature and, 
in that style and so um i just you know i sent them some stuff and uh um ended up doing four parodies for him over the course of four issues mm-hmm. uh and you know it's cracked had its problems and all this type of thing but yeah, it was fun i mean i got to do uh a couple of movies i wrote i actually wrote and drew the godzilla parody that was my first parody the matthew broderick godzilla i wrote and drew that my uh, wrote it myself and i had done it to show sam viviano the newly art minted art director at mad some work so i wrote and drew my own parody and showed it to him and he was he was like oh well you know it's pretty good i i like some stuff about your work you need to keep growing and uh what i later learned was that uh he thought my work was a lot it was too much like mort's mm. mort drucker's i was emulating his style too much and mad was was famous for not hiring people who looked you know who were too close to the style of some of their more famous artists so if, right. you, if you if your stuff looked like jack davis's like there were a lot of jack davis ripoff artists out there mad would not uh you know give you any work yeah um so he said look your stuff isn't exactly like mort's at all you're not a ripoff artist but you it's too heavily influenced by him and you really need to well at the time were they really hiring at that time yet or no well they it was it was a transitional period for Matt at that time because they were at that point looking to switch to color, mm. and that was presenting problems because Mort did not want to work in color. Mm-hmm. Uh, he didn't want to color his parodies, and he refused to allow anybody to color his parodies. Mm. So they were like, "Well, wait a minute, you know, we can't. If we're going to switch to a color magazine, we can't have you know." Uh, keep going with black and white movie parodies and those those have got to be in color so anyway but uh i showed that godzilla piece to to sam and um he's you know gave me some pointers but basically said keep sending me stuff and then i found out about this call from crack magazine for new artists and i sent the stuff to crack well they immediately published it it was like a two two two-year-old movie but (laughs) <laughs> I didn't care, so I had to finish it. I didn't. I didn't have the last page done, so I, I rewrote the last page and drew the and finished it and sent it to them. And uh, they published it in I can't remember what issue number it was. Yeah. And uh, then they said, "Well, let's do another one." So I wrote a Sopranos parody that was really big at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, a buddy of mine helped punch up the gags, and so he was a co-writer. And uh, that they published that one. And then I worked with Barry Dutter. The writer on um, a parody of the X-Men, the first X-Men movie, mm-hmm. and uh, Gladiator, which was the last movie I did for them. And uh, Barry was great. You know, I was doing like everything. I was doing the word balloons, the paste up, the <laughs> layouts, <Wow. laughs> uh, and I was sending camera ready art to to craft mm-hmm. and. Anyway, they had a color section of the magazine, um, a couple of pages in the middle that were color, and the X-Men parody I did in color. And then I was supposed to do the Gladiator parody in color, and I did this crate at the time. was like a really crazy splash page for me. It was a big Gladiator scene with, you know, in the arena, and there are tigers all over the place. (laughs) You know, all the characters are in it, and there's all this action going on, and it took me forever to draw, and it took and I took me forever to color and I had finished
finished just was finished coloring it when I got a call from Barry and they said uh, yeah um, we're bumping it from the color section and it's just going to be in black and white oh, geez. <laughs> and I was pretty mad because I probably spent maybe a whole day coloring that thing mm. maybe longer I mean it was it was a big meticulous scene and uh, I said well, what are you replacing it with and they said oh uh, uh, Dick really wants to do this movie thinks it's going to be really big Battlefield Earth. <laughs> I remember that now. That <laughs> yeah, and I was like, okay. So I was really mad at uh, at everybody at Cracked, and I was kind of fed up with them anyway. So that Gladiator parody had come out, and um, right at exactly at that time was the Rubin Awards, NCS Rubin Awards, and this time it was in New York, and I had just become a member the year before. So I went there, and uh, they had a big mad panel, and Sam was there, and Nick Beglin, and I showed him the Gladiator parody. And I had been sending my stuff to Sam every time I'd get done doing a parody for Cracked, I'd send it to Sam, and he'd get back to me and say, yeah, things are looking good. Well, I finally showed him this, uh, this Gladiator parody, and he and Nick... Uh, took me uh, took me aside and said, "Well, this is exactly what we wanted to see. You've really your work has really progressed, and you know it's, you're, you've got your own voice now. And uh, I think we'd love to have you work for Mad, but uh, there's a problem that like you can't have a byline in Mad Magazine and Crack Magazine at the same time." And I said, "Yeah, that's okay. That's no problem. I don't work for Crack anymore." And they were like, "When did that happen?" And I said, three seconds ago." <laughs> That's the story I love. <laughs> yeah, and, and, they, and Sam says, "Oh, wait a minute! Now I can't promise you when I'm going to be able to give you any work. It might not be for a year." And I said, "That's okay. You know, I didn't tell them the story about how they bumped me from the color section and wasted all my time, but uh, or the fact that I was getting paid hardly anything to do that stuff. Uh, I just had I had I was done with crack the year way at yeah. that point. Yeah. So that it, you know, it just was what it was." And, mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I didn't have to wait too long. It was only like another month later that Sam called me and had me do a piece. Richmond has recently completed a Kickstarter with Desmond Devlin that contains new movie and TV parodies since they no longer work for MAD. Danny Fingeroth was a close friend to the legendary Stan Lee. He discussed his book about Lee on episode number 75. I sent him, I sent him uh, an email and and said uh, remember you know you said go ahead and do an unauthorized book well i i i did <laughs> so, <laughs> so he said uh he said well, congratulations he said, i'm not gonna you know i'm not gonna tell people to talk to you or not to talk to you um but i don't want to be interviewed uh i've been interviewed uh too much i'm tired of it but good luck <laughs> I ended up doing t- I ended up doing two you know very long interviews with him for the book. <laughs> <laughs> how, how did you swing that? <laughs> uh, you know, a I think Stan did just like to talk about uh, Stan <laughs> and about what he thought. But you know what? I I I, um, I live now in the gentrified version of the neighborhood that he you know spent his first like uh, twenty years of trying to get out of Washington Heights in Upper Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, up by the George Washington Bridge. Uh, and so every once in a while I would, you know, and, I, and I've had a lot of contact with him over the, uh, yeah. over the years, especially especially there were those four years where I was his regular moderator at the Wizard World shows. You know, but I'd done, I, 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 had, I had made, you know, 
I, I, I interviewed him a lot for my various magazines and books. He right. wrote forwards for Superman on the Couch in the Sky and Clark Kent. You know, again, I'm not claiming I was his best buddy, but I did. I had a relationship with him. Yeah. Um, and, um, and, and and so I would. I would every once in a while I would send him a picture of the George and, and if you know Stan's you know uh, even from his own memoir from you know 20 years ago or is just his you know his life story his personal mythology is very much tied up with how the George Washington Bridge um, which was built when he was nine years old right I mean mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know so he he lived in Washington Heights and the Bronx but you know as the bridge was built you know, I mean, it's one of those landmarks that's in every, you know, next to maybe next to the Brooklyn Bridge and the Empire State Building, the George Washington Bridge might be one of the main New York landmarks that people know from movies and TV. And right. So I, so I, so I take a picture of the bridge. Here's the bridge at sunset. Here's the bridge in clouds. Here's the bridge at night. And I would send him these pictures, and he go, Oh boy, that really, I remember that. It really uh, strikes a chord. And thanks for sending it. So I have no, you know. I like to flatter myself and think that maybe that kind of <laughs> made him feel nostalgic and that he'd want to talk about his childhood and his early years. I don't know what it was, but at a certain point, uh, you know, he just he, he just he agreed to do an interview, you know, which lasted about maybe an hour, an hour and a half, and then <laughs> a follow-up that lasted uh, another hour and a half, two hours, and and I had a lot of. You know, it's funny, I'd done many interviews with him both in public and then just over the years. I say for my magazine, I'd had some interviews I did with him. And I'd been, I guess also I did, Roy and I did that Stanley Universe book back in right. 2011. And, uh, you know, I, I remember getting, a, it was very funny, I, I was at Stan's archives in Wyoming, at the University of Wyoming, which is a whole other story, to, just, just to get to Stan's archives. <laughs> I'd had, 
you know, an, enough interaction with him over the years that, um, and, and, and I think maybe especially those last few years when I was doing uh, the panels with him. Fingeroth is now working on a book about Jack Ruby. Episode number 78 contained an interview with art instructor Malcolm Matubo Smith, who is a collector of comic books with covers featuring underwater themes. We'll probably get into deeper thought and conversation about my main thing now. In the last uh, 15, 16 years, I've focused on this thematic collection of underwater covered uh, Golden Age books. Yeah. So I've <laughs> And yes, I knew about that, and I was going to ask you about that. We might as well talk about it now. Um, so, why underwater? Are you uh, interested in water sports and uh, boating and everything, or is it just the the theming for the comic books? <laughs> it's really a visual a visual thing. It's an aesthetic, uh, artistic driven uh, collection that looks at the uniqueness of what the artists were challenging themselves with in deciding to depict uh, heroics or whatever's going on, it, you know, it runs a gamut because this collection ignores genre, it ignores uh, for the most part decades, I mean it covers from 33 to 61, so I'm looking at the the big golden age bracket not the not the tight 1956 one, <laughs> but uh, just so I can have more of them in there, I say loosely 10 cent covers Yeah. so the uh there's something going on when the artists decide that they're going to try to depict a substance for uh, actions to exist within. It isn't just, you know, you can see Superman floating through the air or even flying in space or whatever. It, you know, There's no particular um, thing going on artistically to sort of depict the, the atmosphere that they're in. So there might be a few examples here and there of clouds or uh, maybe smoke wisps here and there, but the idea of something being submerged and then coming up with the graphic um, clues to tell you that something's underwater, I just find them incredibly beautiful, fascinating, and I wanted to collect every single example. <laughs> uh, my gateway drug was Wiz Comics number 19. Like, I, I had seen, obviously, lots and lots of uh, Golden Age books in my life, but it, in, I think I probably trying to put a date on when this actually started. It was before I moved to Bloomington, Indiana. So I was teaching at Western Kentucky University down in Bowling Green, Kentucky, mm -hmm. when I landed my Wiz Comic 19 for the first time. And it was on the strength of that cover, the, the, the structure of that cover, the graphic the graphic design, the fact that the tail of the, the shark that uh, Captain uh, Marvel has him in a headlock, okay. uh, it it, it, it rips through and sort of obscures the masthead of the title itself. So even in their infancy, they're only a year and a half, two years old at that point, they were willing to obstruct a huge portion of their graphic letter structure at the top of the page uh, for, the, for the value of this amazing heroic feat. Uh, and then, so you have characters floating underneath there. So you have this young woman uh, floating in the water and, and Captain Marvel's hair is being affected by hypothetical water undulations and they've got <laughs> bubbles you know, all that stuff just fascinated me so i just wanted to have every single copy <laughs> now um it's interesting that you uh like the underwater covers at the same time you said hulk was your favorite superhero why not like say submariner or aquaman or something like that well surprisingly there's very few there's there are no golden age uh 
depictions of Aquaman underwater. And I don't know. Wow. <laughs> you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe there's no actual Golden Age uh, cover appearance of Aquaman in more fun comics, even, where he uh, first appeared. There's not a single Golden Age Aquaman cover. Smith is hoping to complete his book about his underwater comic books soon. In episode number 79, legendary artist and writer Stan Mack discussed his career, including a piece of animation he did long ago for the Electric Company TV show. I know we're jumping around a bit, and I will ask about some of your other books, but, you know, you were involved, like I said, with Sesame Street and Electric Company. Were you ever involved in the TV show itself? Like, did no. they ever do any animations of your work or anything like that? Uh, yes. I oh, did, they did two okay. animated shorts, one of which won an award in someplace in Europe. Um, uh, I forget how they came about. I was connected to a, uh, I had some friends at a little animation production house I think it was God, you know I think the name just popped in my head I think it was called Ovation mm -hmm. okay. they were long gone uh, <laughs> and and um, uh, with them I did two short animated pieces having to do with English okay the, uh, I forget an IR an EAR the sound the AR I think it was called I think it was called The Bird in the Car. It was a giant bird sitting on top of a car which was speeding down the road. And I don't think the people in the car knew the bird was up there. Mm -hmm. And and somehow it was about E-R-A-R, <laughs> I-R sounds and, and uh, you know, teaching the kids about that. And the other one was something similar. It was about a parrot in a cage in a house, in a room, and somebody knocking on the door and parrot answering it. <laughs> I can't tell you okay. now the punchline. But anyway, I did those two and, and would have liked to have done more, but um, somehow, you know, I, I got, if I go through boxes of my old sketches, and there are a lot of them, I'll, I find that um, there are pitches for animated shorts that I never followed through with. Hmm. I think any, like any writer, maybe you have this both ways um, over the years you come up with ideas that get halfway through yeah. you don't know what to do with them how to end them who to pitch them to yeah and you get side are there any good and, yeah. and they end up in a, in a big box now you, you mentioned that one with the parrot it's not the one where it's the plumber that he's knocking on the yes, door it the is that one okay parrot. I love that one you know, <laughs> Where did you? So you must have seen that. Oh, I know uh, the, that one by heart. You know, it's like in the parrot wow. says, "It's the plumber. He's come to fix the sink." Exactly. <laughs> and the guy has like a heart attack and dies. And it's like, wow, this is pretty cool for a kids show. The guy dies. <laughs> See, I should have kept going. I probably had a career, but don't you guys? No, have? that's a, that's a very memorable one. In fact, they, a few years ago, I think it's Shout Factory is the label. They put out the best of Electric Company and put out complete episodes and i believe uh, that segment's on one of them somewhere but you know it's like but it, it was a very memorable one and people would say that at school they'd go it's the plumber <laughs> i've come to fix the sink you know <laughs> just because it was so ludicrous you know wow this is a revelation well, yeah. i hope that um <laughs> maybe you can send me if there's any way i could get to see that it might be on youtube but yeah i could find it and see if i can send you a link <laughs> see if you see if you can find it send yeah. me a Mac is still working today, compiling interviews with people as they go through the pandemic. 
One of Mac's National Lampoon colleagues was B.K. Taylor. He was interviewed on episode number 80, where he discussed his career working with Tim Allen on home improvement. Tim Allen, uh, we live in the same area, ironically, and he was a big fan of the Appletons and followed it and would bring strips into the comedy club uh, here called the Comedy Castle, Mark Ridley's Comedy Castle. And um, someone finally said, you know, I think that guy, he lives around here. And he said, no, he's probably out in New York. And they said, no, I'll, I'll see if we can contact him. So they contacted this guy, uh, Bob Belnicki, who uh, knew Tim and I, and they put us together. And um, we found out we had the same sense of humor and <laughs> um, then take uh, a few, like in those old movies where the calendar comes out <laughs> and uh, swirls. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
on your forehead, you're branded <laughs> as a squealer. And so for the first month or so, I would come in in the morning and I'd see them, some of the writers talking in the hall or whatever, and everybody would kind of stop and their head put their heads down. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> and I'd be like, morning, <laughs> morning, morning, morning. <laughs> and whisper to each other during certain, you know, gags or whatever. And I thought, boy, this is going to be a tough road. <laughs> and I had to kind of prove to them that I wasn't going to go over because what usually happens is the writers, if a gag dies, the writers blame the uh, actors and the <laughs> actors blame the writers. <laughs> and they keep, you know, they would think I'd run to tune. Um, but uh, Finally, uh, it was around Christmas time, and uh, they gave me my first script. Up to that point, you you literally are are creating shows for a writer. In other words, there's an A and a B and a C story, and there's a bulletin board with note cards that have different ideas. The the, the boys on the show steal money, um, mm-hmm. and then see the neighbor next door, blah, blah, blah. So in the meantime, I, that's what I was doing up to that point, is working with the other writers on that. And then it came my turn, and um, they said, well, we're all going on you know, vacations over the holiday, and, uh, <laughs> but if you need anything, just give us a call. <laughs> and so I went back home, and I uh, celebrated the Christmas, and I didn't started writing like crazy and I got to areas where I was unsure and uh, I made calls and didn't get the answers <laughs> and I thought this is getting scary it's almost time to go back and uh, uh, so I just wrote mm-hmm. and um, then I got on a plane went uh, back to uh, uh, LA and uh, handed it in, and <laughs> oh my God! With my imagination, I—it was the camping episode was the first one, mm. <laughs> and they—they um, they said, "Oh, you know, this is a little cartoony." I had Bigfoot uh, <laughs> possibly coming <laughs> at the end. Mm. Uh, the rest of it pretty much stayed, but it was the Binford Tools camping episode, <laughs> and. Um, we worked on it, rewrote it. The other writers, of course, were looking at me like, what are you doing? This thing is huge. And what eventually happened, I remember <laughs> I called my, my wife and I said, I think this is going to be over very soon because I just walked to the soundstage where they were rehearsing and all the writers were ahead of me Kind of like, you know, like animals do when an animal's dying. <laughs> they they don't use them to die. <laughs> and I remember, I remember it was kind of windy, and, and actually a little piece of sagebrush <laughs> blew by me. And I thought, oh God, this is so horrible. <laughs> and they uh, they did did some rehearsals and so forth. But it was so big. The script was so big as far as. Uh, budget, mm-hmm. they had to, for the first time, use two sound stages. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And 
of the, the audience um, uh, losing the energy while walking from one sound stage to the other. And so the, the punch-up person, this Billy Rebeck, was really working the audience, trying to keep them, you know, escalated. And I, I just walked over with everyone, thinking, "Oh my God, I'm the one that's caused all this." <laughs> and the, then we got to the other stage, and they had like a band going beep beep beep. beep. <laughs> <laughs> I was going, "Oh my God, this might nightmare doesn't end." And. Uh, my, my wife was there because the, the night that they used the script that you created, uh, they uh, have you stand up and the audience applauds and all that. Mm -hmm. And um, so she was there with me and uh, we watched the show and uh, 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 Wilson came out and uh, he, didn't, you know, he didn't have the fence so he's out in the woods. <laughs> uh, they're camping and... Um, he had a scarf around his, his uh, <laughs> face, you know. Mm -hmm. And I heard the audience kind of go, oh, my God. <laughs> and I, I was so nervous and uh, kind of excited. Uh, I started applauding, <laughs> laughing and applauding. <laughs> and everybody followed me. <laughs> so if you ever see the episode, <laughs> the first hand applauding <laughs> is me. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> uh, but at any rate, it it uh, it worked out uh, in the end. Actually, my second script was over budget too. <laughs> so the bean counters would say hello to me in the beginning of you know when I first got there, but <laughs> after a while they were too crazy. But uh, I, I made amends with all the uh, writers, and we're friends to this day. That's cool. Did three seasons there. Taylor is still promoting his book, I Think He's Crazy, containing his National Lampoon cartoons. There are so many other clips I could have played, but fortunately you can go back and listen to all 99 previous episodes, except number 51, which did not have a special guest, and was removed for music copyright reasons on the DC Filmation cartoon themes. I think the topper of all 99 episodes has got to be the one with Anthony from Facebook, who is also known as the Kingfish. He destroyed episode number 30 with his discussion about Jerry Lewis's unreleased film, The Day the Clown Cried. I leave you with this classic clip. Now, uh, since you're talking about, you know, still buy stuff on VHS, and I'm sure there's tons, but I mean, is there like a wish list or a want list that you have of films that you just are dying to see that just after 30, 40 years of collecting, you still don't see them? What are you looking for? Well, come on, everybody. The Holy Grail is the day the clown cries. Yeah. That's the, that is the Holy Grail. Yes. And give it time. Yes. Give it time. His fucking family, they're sitting on their asses right now. But give it 10, 20 years for a quick buck. They'll release that fucking film. You will see it. Mark my words. Yeah. But they're just, that's really, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I've heard it's not really that great, but it's no. Just, I mean, I was it's just, just talking. It's, it's a wrong movie. Yes, and there are lots of wrong movies. <laughs> I was talking on another podcast about this, and it's like I said this just general statement, and the guy agreed with me, and he's like, "Is that it's probably like which way to the front?" <laughs> oh God. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, that's another.
episode. He really was one of the greatest bad men ever. <laughs> yeah. Oh, mean, my God. Perkadan didn't help Jerry Lewis's career. Let's put it that way. And, right. you know, I always think about, you know, and he doesn't say this in his memoir, but he does say that he it was going to kill himself with a gun in 73. And I said, maybe it was because the day the clown cried came out as a piece of shit. <laughs> oh, my God. He had one of the craziest, like, like he didn't... There were two years in the seventies that he didn't, he couldn't even remember, remember, because his mind was so shot. Right. <laughs> well, you know what I have on VHS? Slapstick of another kind. Oh wow, that is pretty rare. <laughs> it was just pure evil. That hasn't been released on DVD or, or Blu-ray, so sometimes it's worth. If you see these old VHS tapes, pick them up. Wow. <laughs> I'm trying to think of other films. Um... Well, have you seen the Jerry Lewis films? It's in the Jerry Lewis films book. Is he did a couple films for France? Yes. Are they any good? Or are they just pieces of shit? Like you know any what? of his he later went to France, and I've seen snippets of these movies. They're basically they're just licking his ass, <laughs> and he's just basically that's all these movies are about. Isn't he the greatest thing since Jesus Christ? Yeah. Let's lick his ass. Yeah. Meanwhile, over here, no one gave a shit about him until Scorsese. Right. But then he had he had the, he had those comeback movies. Yeah. Was it Cracking Up and Smorgasbord? Yeah. Well, that's the same movie. But yeah. And then. Oh yeah, that's the same movie. But what's the what's the there was another one. hardly working. Hardly working. <laughs> yes. Which I'd love to see on video. You know, I saw it back then. You know, and the only scene I remember is when he's opening the can of juice in the bar or something, and he pours yes. the whole thing. But I don't remember anything else. And he has the big buck teeth and everything. And it's like good, good non PC stuff from Jerry I'm Lewis. Sorry, that, that made me laugh. That, 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 I remember renting it. It was on VHS. I'm cracking up. What's the one with Herb Edelman? He's a psychiatrist. That, that, yeah, that's that cracking guy. up. Yeah, which was smorgasbord up. originally. <laughs> oh, you know, with those movies, it was funny to Jerry. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's part of the appeal. Jerry yeah. Lewis does stuff that's funny to him, <laughs> and he is the lord of cringes. Yes, he made a ton of stuff that just cringeworthy, but because it's cringeworthy, <laughs> that's what makes it funny. Yeah, what kind of sick bastard thinks this is funny? Okay, the floor is waxy. It's slippery. Let me let me slip on the floor for seven minutes, not stop. And he will do that. He'll announce that he will do it for seven minutes. Hold on. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> God. <laughs> I don't know if you're, you know, I don't know your relationship with your father, but in my case, my dad and I have very similar tastes in a lot of movies, which helped me growing up because he introduced me to a lot of stuff. But there's certain things like I love Jerry Lewis, even though I know he's cringeworthy, he's an asshole, and yes. everything like that. But yes. my dad never understood it. He says, "Why do you like Jerry Lewis?" He might have been good when he was with Dean Martin, but certainly <laughs> yes. none of his solo. And it's like because. He's fascinating to watch. There's something yes. weird about him, you know. It's like is, he is psychotic. <laughs> he is he is a mad clown. He is that evil clown. There he was he was first of all, he was unapologetic. Okay? He was a he was just a flamethrower of a human being. Uh -huh. There are zillions of insane Jerry Lewis stories, and trust me, yeah. now that he's dead, you're going to find out stuff that oh, is going to yeah. make you go crazy. <laughs> you must read that book, everybody. By uh, it's called The King of Comedy. By uh, his last name is Levy. Okay, 
I don't even know if I read that one, but okay. You you will go crazy. They, the guy tried to do a bio, an authorized biography of Jerry Lewis. Uh-huh. At the end of the book, Jerry throws him out his yacht. <laughs> and that's like the end of the book. But this book is full of lunacy. <laughs> like one night, Jerry Lewis was in Miami Beach, and uh, the audience was really bad. So he went back to his room and got drunk. Yeah. And he cracked a bottle of liquor uh, against the wall and broke it. And then he tried, he said, I christened this hotel uh, the... The USS motherfucker, and he lit the <laughs> wall on fire. He almost burned the fucking place down. <laughs> I even like mild things that actually appear on YouTube. Like you, you probably have seen this. It's like where uh, this kid comes up. Jerry's doing a personal appearance and says, "I can imitate you." And he goes, "Really?" And he hands him the microphone, and the kid goes, "When you walk," and oh, then he yes, pulls, yes. he whips that mic out of his hand. Yes. Is fa- you know, he pulls his hand off. You know, it's, he yes. whips it out so fast, yes. and he says, "Thank oh, you. Oh, get out of here." No, you know? no, 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 he lectures the guy. That I can't watch that video, man. I can't watch it. <laughs> Jerry says, you have just been in an accident. You have just been in a train wreck. He berates the guy in front of thousands of people. You just stepped on the third rail. You can imitate me, but you can't sing that song. And it's that like it's not even a song. song. It's a song from Carousel. That is, I care about the kids. These fucking kids. And I, I never understood that. I don't know. It's like he says, you'll never walk alone. What? You always will need a wheelchair? What? You know, it's like that's what I always thought with that song, even no. as a kid. Jerry Lewis, man. He cares about handicapped children. Meanwhile, his own fucking kids hate his fucking guts. <laughs> He beat the shit out of his kids, man! Well, he got his revenge. He took him out of the well. Ha! That's right, you motherfuckers! I'll beat the shit out of you! Get these fucking cripples out of the fucking way! Give me my check! Oh, man. You're making me cough. No way, no! Some of the handicapped people, they were protesting, Jerry. He said to them, get who bought you your wheelchair? <laughs> I did. <laughs> <laughs> he had a persecution complex, man. Everybody's Hitler. <laughs> he, look, he is so fascinating. He's even more fascinating. Like, that's him in The King of Comedy. Yeah. He's simply portraying himself. Yeah. That is the Jerry Lewis. Yeah. But what amazed me is, like, I thought Jerry Lewis was going to die in 1983 because he used to do the shtick where he'd light the lighter and it'd have a 10-inch right. flame and, you know, Wah! you know, well, and, the, and then he had a heart attack and, like, a, a quintuple bypass, Jerry, and I said, listen, he's a goner, and then he Jerry, comes back, yeah. and then he gets that uh, other heart problem where he has to take the, the steroids yeah, or something, and he gets to be a, 8,000 pounds. It's like, how does yeah. he survive that? And then he loses yeah. the weight, and he's still it's going. Like, it's like Satan made him live longer and longer. <laughs> he, he dodged, he dodged so many bullets. You need to see the E. True Hollywood story about Jerry. He dodged so many bullets. I'll never forget when I saw him. He was like a whale. I couldn't stop laughing. I'm like, this guy has had one hell of a life. <laughs> and one 
thing that is on YouTube, which is a great thing if they haven't taken it down, is where they, the, you know, he is singing You'll Never Walk Alone with little clips every year from like 76 to the end, you know, and it's like you see him gaining the weight and then he loses it <laughs> and then he grows a third tail and then he's like, you know, it's like, what is going on with this guy? You know, and then oh, he's yeah. like this shriveled old man at the end and he kind of wobbles off and I go, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just that is, we we love the freak show yes he's just it is one of the greatest freak shows ever and i love that he doesn't give a fuck about your feelings he doesn't care this is a telethon for for handicapped children and he calls somebody a fag <laughs> and then he there's one clip he talks about his porno collection what the fuck man we're raising money for little kids you motherfucker I'm, the, I'm, the, I'm like Chaplin. I know because the friendship sound like Chaplin. So I can say, I have carte blanche. I can say whatever I want. Dean! Dean, come back! No, Dean Martin was the, one of the smartest men on this planet. Dean Martin should have got a Nobel Peace Prize to put up with this fucking. Monkey. I was going to say for breaking up with that. Oh my god, a fucking monkey on PCP. It's man. like I can finally have a hit record. I can finally start a proper movie career. You know, it's like... You fucking Jew bastard, I'm out of here, you motherfucker. I'm sorry, come back, you're the greatest. It's amazing to me. Fuck. It's amazing to me that people predicted, oh, Dean Martin, his career's over without Jerry Lewis. It's like... And then, oh, man, that, that, it was beautiful because Jerry's career collapsed and Dino's career sword. Yeah. I have the variety show. Yeah. I have the movies. Yeah, yeah it's a, anything Dean touched it was successful. You know, it's like yeah. Gary would try to do a talk show it'd last thirteen weeks and meanwhile oh. Dean's on there, I'm on your eight, I'm on your nine, I'm on oh. your ten. <laughs> right. And like like Dean had the rat pack and Jerry tried I, Jerry wanted to be cool but no one <laughs> there's one clip he goes on Carson yeah. and Carson tells Jerry Lewis nobody likes you <laughs> I, I always have this impression of the Rat Pack it's like they're playing poker or something uh, and you know smoking cigars and there's this knock on the door Frank let me in Frank you know it's like sorry Jerry can't let you in you know, Dino's here you know <laughs> you know what Frank Sinatra called Jerry Lewis <laughs> Chew. <laughs> so whenever Jerry called up, Frank would be like, "What's going on, Chew?" <laughs> Frank, I love you. Let me suck your cock, please. Let me be in your circle, please. Who is at the door? Chew. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> we'll let Lawford in, but not Jerry. <laughs> oh, he, he fucking hated Lawford. That's yeah, that's why I said that. <laughs> Wow! <laughs> you could go on and on with uh, Jerry Lewis. They're like he's like Tony Curtis. Like he, uh, they don't give a shit. Uh, and it is amazing. They're, you 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 said on Phil's show, it's like you know, or he said it, it's like they did a movie together, Boeing, Boeing. And it's kind of sad it, that Tony Curtis came off as funnier than Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> it's just a train wreck. You can't. You can't look away, though. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah. Oh, and, wow. and even now, it's hard to believe Jerry's dead. I always think he's going to come back. It's like, surprise! <laughs> <laughs> I faked my death just for you. <laughs> I'm going to live for a hundred like I said I would. <laughs> why? Why? I cheated on my wife. Who gives a shit? <clears throat> That's another story. Like Jerry Lewis, like he created a he created like a bachelor pad. Right. And meanwhile, he was married to his wife. He created a bachelor pad. It was banging broads. <laughs> <laughs> his wife divorced his. And then there's a clip of him talking about religion. <laughs> I wonder. Like, <laughs> I, I wonder if Jerry acted different around women <laughs> when he was alone with them because either Jerry. Because his duality, his duality was would be totally annoying to me if a woman was like this, either the blah blah blah, or well, you see, um, I think right now we'll be undressing and taking our clothes off. <laughs> you know, that type oh, of and remember, Jerry Lewis always has a phantom lozenge in his mouth. <laughs> Whenever he's talking, he has he has a lozenge. A lozenge. lozenge. <laughs> Expert. He's an expert on everything, you know. I created video assist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I told Frank sure Tashler, you, no. <laughs> you can shut the fuck up. I don't need you, you know. <sighs> you know, these kids today, they need a good whipping, you know. Because I'm like Chaplin. And if I want to jerk off on these bitches at my house, my kids should shut up, you know, because I know what I'm talking about. <sighs> I'm a persecuted man. I'm trying to do this to save lives. We are saving lives, yeah. ladies and gentlemen. Get on the phone. There's one clip where, you know, everybody's doing cocaine. Take that money for cocaine and right. give it to the kids. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of mind is that? <clears throat> yeah, there's two Jerry Lewis appearances. I'm sure there's others like this, but they just boggle my mind. One, and it's just because out, so how, out of step or just his own world he was always in. Uh, if you see the yes. Jack Benny birthday special that came out 50 years ago, this month, uh, you know, everybody does their little cameo. Even Lawrence Welk comes out and actually is pretty funny. And then Jerry does his, and it's like the laughter stops. It's like, you know, it's on YouTube, watch it. It's like, you know, everybody's like, hey, Jack, it's great. And, you know, Dan Blocker comes in there and says some jokes. Don Wilson comes on there. They all trade stick, stick with Jack, and Jack does his typical, well, you know, and all that stuff. And then Jerry comes out, and, and Jack tries. He goes, oh, hi, Jerry. You know, and it's like, and then Jerry just does, like, kind of his weird kind of semi-serious Jerry, and it's like... Right. Uh, get off the stage, you know. If I was Jack Benny, I would have said that. <laughs> but Jack was too nice. Jack would never say that. You know, Jerry Lewis was a dropout. You know, he punched out his principal. <laughs> oh, God. So, but I say that because Jerry Lewis, just watch any interview with him. Yeah. He is one eloquent <laughs> lunatic. Yes. <laughs> and it's, it's just fascinating. Yeah, I mean, occasionally he had little bits of brilliance, which I love. It's like if you find like the clip in the '80s with uh, Letterman, and he says, "Can you do a lady?" And he goes, "Lady," like that. And it's like, oh wow, he can turn it on like that. But most of the time, he has it off. You know, it's like, <laughs> right? It's just, it's, it, 
you cringe. And you know, I went to I went to go see him like uh, six, seven years before he died. He was nearby, and I caught one of his shows. And basically, he comes out. He does the most politically incorrect jokes, <laughs> tired jokes, jokes that died sixty years ago. He's doing these jokes, and then he shows clips. <laughs> and now, and then. The last hour of the show was the worst Q&A session I ever witnessed in my life. Every fan came up to the microphone and he shot them down. Jerry, can you sing a song? No. Next question. Jerry, I love you. Okay. He said to the audience, I know, I know you all love me. Don't come up to the microphone and tell me that. Just get to your question so we can get out of here. Some, some lady was crying, Jerry, I love you. And he called her Broderick Crawford. He said, you look like Broderick Crawford. Wow. <laughs> who the fuck does, who insults the audience like that? I mean, not like, even Don Rickles would soften the blow. No, Jerry would insult people that came to see him. There's a great article online called Jerry Lewis is Alive and It's Still an Asshole. Oh, yeah. and that's what it's called. And it was written by a guy who went to one of his shows. You have to read this. What He, he would put the audience in a meat grinder. Like, he, like, he, just, he would insult everybody and everything. <laughs> Jeremy, can you talk about your family? Uh, next question. I'm not going to discuss my family. So uh, for one hour, I was cringing, cringing, cringing. I just wa I wanted to stay, but I wanted to leave. I almost went up to the microphone and I said, fuck this. He's going to shoot me. I'm going back to my I was going to ask, did you bother to ask a question? <laughs> no, no. No, because uh, he, he sent me an autograph photo. Okay. And I just want to keep that memory. Like, he liked me. Like, <laughs> I don't want to remember that. <laughs> Sit down, you greasy motherfucker. Just shit. <laughs> I mean, these people paid fifty hundred dollars, <sighs> and Jerry Lewis is pissing on everybody. Wow. And then he did the announcer's test. You know, the announcer's test. He reads off two swamps, three boiled eggs, four, four horses. Right, right. Like. And then he said, okay, thank you, good night. Well, did he finish it? <laughs> That's all I remember, the Tibetan it. memory tricks. <laughs> he did it. Oh. Yeah, he, could, I mean, he was a genius, but this guy had a vicious mean streak. It was like walking through a minefield. Hmm. Like, you didn't know what would set him off. That's why the, the Nutty Professor is like almost the Jerry Lewis film. Yep. He did have a Jekyll Hyde personality. Yeah. Yeah. He was bipolar. He was all over the place. You never knew what Jerry Lewis you would see in the next second. Yeah. And Buddy you Love know, certainly was future greasy hair Jerry. You know, it's like, you know, because he pretty much kept his hair not greasy too much uh, in his 50s oh, and man. 60s movies. It was more of a buzz cut, except maybe later on. But then in the 80s, all those slimy uh, oh. king of comedy, you know, I comb my hair with buttered toast type films. <laughs> and the tan. He always had the tan. And the pinky ring. Yes. The pinky ring. Yeah. And kind of the swagger one. It's like right, I'm a goomba, you know. Yeah. What I'm <laughs> Jeez, you must feel insulted, <laughs> Jew. Oh, yeah. <laughs> What's going on, Jew? <laughs> thank you for listening, and thank you, Lee Hester, Mick Gray, Bob Perlow, Milton Knight, Mort Todd, Dan Fiorella, Walter Brogan, Charles Santino, Phil Hall, Bob Kurtz, Alan Bryan, Wesley Hyatt, Martin Grams. Curtis Findlay, David Seedman, Troy Horbus, Ted Davenport, Denise McKinney, Nat Gertler, 
Eddie D'Angelini, Jorge Pacheco, Buzz Dixon, Andrew Farrago, Mike Curtis, Joe Waz, Michael Rusigliano, Paul Brenner, Bill Shelley, Anthony Vitamia, Andrew Goldfarb, Steve Bergson, James Nybar, Matthew Hansel, Jonathan Sternfeld, John B. Cook, Danny Salazi, Alan Graining, Jen Graining, Paul Marangeli, Michael A. Ventrella, Kit Lively, Richard Von Busek, Angelo DeCessori, Joe Staten, Scott Shaw, Joe Field, Shannon Garrity, Eric Schenauer, Rick Goldschmidt, Dara McNeil, Barry Dutter, J. David Spurlock, Ron Ferdinand, Peter Bagg, Guy Gilchrist, Michael Auschenker, Richard Becker, Steve Darnall, Sean Clancy, Andy Mangles, Joe Ferrara, Michael Urey, Bill Morrison, Roger Brown, Tom Richmond, Dan Parent, Phil Schlafer, Michael Gerber, Danny Fingeroth, Matthew Hahn, Malcolm Matubo-Smith, Stan Mack, B.K. Taylor, Sam Henderson, Phil Strangle-Agali, Bruce Bollinger, Peter Mareska, Charles F. Rosnay, Greg Erbar, Jerry Beck, Tim Hollis, Fred Velez, Tommy Burns, Daniel Sam, Aaron Carnes, Grant Geisman, Matthew LeBlanc, and Alexis Haina, for all being my special guests. Episode number 101 will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a patron of Mark Arnold and Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help in continuing the production of my books and this podcast. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. The opening and closing music for the Fun Ideas podcast is provided courtesy of Andrew the Slow Poisoner Goldfarb and is used with permission. This has been the Fun Ideas podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2020, Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you and good night. doors at the price I'm paying be glad it isn't yours now get up Don't fall back Don't fall back Don't fall back